Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Mr. Michael Howell. Michael is the founder of Cross Border Capital and the author of the critically acclaimed book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. I've read it several times. Michael, thanks again for coming on the show. Hey, Joe, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So at the Bitcoin layer, uh, and our audience will know this, we love to bring on uh, specialists in their field, experts in their craft to what they do. Uh, and, and I will say first and foremost that when I found your work at Cross Border Capital, I was pretty astounded with the work that you've done in global liquidity. Uh, I found Capital War shortly after. Similarly, I was pretty amazed uh, by the, the depth uh, and the breadth of your knowledge when it comes to global liquidity. Um, so I guess the first thing that I'll ask you here uh, is we'll, we'll talk about liquidity. We'll talk about its importance. Um, obviously, over the last several decades, and you talk about this in your book, Capital Wars, the world world's financial markets has shifted more so from a capital raising mechanism uh, to sort of a refinancing mechanism, right? Where where debt rollovers take on more importance than new debt issuance, and because of this, you talk about how the capacity of capital, uh, you know, which is what what you refer liquidity to, um, is more important than interest rates or the cost of capital. Now, for us at the Bitcoin layer, uh, we tend to view U.S. Treasuries, the suite of Treasury rates, is the most important price in the world. Um, over exchange rates, we feel that they're the most important price of money. Um, talk to us about how you've observed that shift to rollovers being more important than than the new debt issuance per se, uh, and why liquidity is is a more important metric to track uh, than than interest rates. Okay, yeah, well, it's uh, it, it's quite a long story actually, but uh, let me first give a heads up to Salomon Brothers. Um, that's why I pretty much began in the uh, in the mid 1980s. And Salomon Brothers, the U.S. investment bank, as probably many many people will know and many people won't know, uh, was the preeminent investment bank worldwide. Uh, it was effectively the government bond market. Uh, Salomon was a, a huge proprietary trader. Uh, a lot of the finance financial techniques that we know and love today uh, were actually invented by Salomon Brothers. So it, it was preeminent in its field. And the, uh, the head of research, Henry Kaufman, was really the doyen of uh, flow of funds accounting. And Henry used to use liquidity as really a guide to understanding the U.S. Treasury market. Um, so that's really the beginning of the story. Uh, why is looking at liquidity today so important? I think it comes back to probably one key event, uh, if you want to put it onto, onto one, one thing. And that is the entry of China into the world economy, and maybe specifically the entry of China through the or into the World Trade Organization at the end of 2001. Now, one of the consequences of uh, China's entry was that uh, the world began to experience disinflation. And many central bankers, particularly uh, Greenspan Bernanke, uh, to name names, uh, feared that this particular transition wasn't uh, a beneficial, let's say, cost deflation. It was a pernicious monetary deflation. And from the experience of the 1930s, we know that's bad. And so as a result of that, uh, they began to slash interest rates. Now, the problem with slashing interest rates is that interest rates may be a way of stimulating monetary policy, but it also encourages debt, it incentivizes debt. And so what you saw through that period was a tremendous appetite and availability of debt. Debt was cheap. Now, as a result of China's competition, what you saw were a number of zombie companies who couldn't really face up to the heightened competition. And so they absorbed uh, a lot of this debt or they basically issued a lot of debt. And so what you saw, particularly from the beginning of the, of the 2000s, was a very rapid growth in US debt take up. So the debt GDP ratio spiraled upwards. Now, if you have debt, debt has a maturity, a life. So the average uh, maturity of debt that's out, sitting out there now is around about five years. That pool of debt now totals well in excess of $300 trillion worldwide. That's how much it's grown. If you divide 300 by five, you're talking about 60 trillion of debt. It's at least that number that has to be rolled every year. Now, if you're rolling debt, and let's think of a specific example, like a home mortgage, and your home mortgage is coming up for repayment, and you can't repay, you've got to roll that position. It's not the interest rate that really matters to you. Clearly, it's important. 
but it's not the crucial thing. The crucial thing is getting the role, finding someone who's going to lend to you. If you don't, you're homeless. So it focuses the mind. And that's the same with debt. You have to repay the debt, otherwise you default. And that is unacceptable. So effectively, it's the flow of liquidity that's important because liquidity measures balance sheet capacity. A balance sheet capacity is what's needed to roll the debt. So that's why liquidity, the volume of liquidity is so important. So if we go back and look over the last two decades, most financial crises have not been triggered by specific debt to GDP ratios, which is what the academics tell us. It's when liquidity has got out of step with debt volumes. In other words, what you need to think about is a fairly stable relationship between debt and liquidity. That's a fantastic response. And so uh, that brings us to, I suppose, chart number five that you have here, which is your global liquidity index. And you've actually mapped out that relationship, uh, you know, it, sort of with the, the liquidity cycle uh, as it ebbs and flows. You can see crisis uh, happens sort of beneath that, uh, that 50 line, sort of that, that midline mm -hmm. per se. Um, and then uh, towards the, the peak of the, the liquidity cycle on your global liquidity index, um, you tend to see where, where the public usually, uh, uh, when we're referencing like massive monetary and fiscal easing events, these are usually what we're referencing. QE4, uh, QE6 with the COVID crisis, uh, mm -hmm. China easing and QE1. Um, so what is, what is this global liquidity index actually comprised of? How is this something that you guys go about calculating? Okay, well, it's, um, first of all, important thing to say is it's global. So this takes into account uh, 90 economies worldwide. Now, um, clearly on that definition of 90 economies, there's a long, long tail in that. And it's only really maybe half a dozen economies, America, China, Eurozone, uh, Switzerland, uh, etc., Canada, Australia, which are really important. Um, so they're the ones that really concentrate that we tend to focus on, but we're comprehensive. We look at everything. So number one, it's global. Number two is it's not money supply. And that's a very important thing to stress. Money supply is a measure of the liability side of high street bank balance sheets. So retail, it's retail money, okay, essentially. But if banks get their funding, all their funding from bank deposits, retail bank deposits, then money supply is a good gauge to liquidity. Liquidity is really the other side of the balance sheet, the asset side of the balance sheet. And it's actually bigger than banks. It includes shadow banks. So the difference between liquidity and money supply, which is what people maybe are more familiar with, M2 or M1 or whatever, the difference is that number one is includes non-deposit financing, so things like repos or debt issuance. And number two, that it also includes beyond banks, shadow banks. So in many cases, we say that liquidity under our definition actually begins where conventional monetary aggregates end. That's a convenient way of putting it. It's effectively wholesale money that is flowing through financial markets. And that's really the key difference. You wouldn't expect uh, global liquidity to give you a good heads up to high street inflation, but you would expect it to give a very good prediction of asset price inflation. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So let's let's shift gears here now. And we you you talked about how this global liquidity measure uh, it takes into account uh, repo transactions, debt issuance, all of sort of that financial plumbing that isn't observable on the surface with. Uh, regular uh, M2, which is you know obviously just retail deposits, and as you said, that would be an accurate measure of liquidity, uh, if not for other funding sources, which really drive global finance more than normal retail deposits. In that vein, I want to talk to you about bank reserves uh, mm -hmm. because this is these have sort of been the talk of the town as of late. This is the Fed's second attempt at quantitative tightening, uh, whereby letting assets mature off of their balance sheet, including treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and the like. They are uh, removing bank reserves from uh, Fed banks. Now, as of right now, uh, sort of this can be thought of as the, the capacity of capital in the interbank market, at least a, a very good portion of it. Uh, and so obviously, the Fed has pretty large influence here when it comes to uh, the level of that. It's declined from, I think, 4.2 or 4.4 trillion to now 3 trillion. And the often cited level uh, of where the Fed's ample reserves framework uh, won't be so ample anymore is 2.5 trillion. 
Um, I see in your chart here that you've referenced that level. I think Jerome Powell has also explicitly referenced that level. If not, it was another Fed speaker. Um, talk to us about uh, bank reserves as of right now. Uh, you know, why uh, are they so critical to the for our listeners? Why are they so critical to the functioning uh, of uh, U.S. dollar money and capital markets? Uh, and is there a level below which, uh, if they drop, things start to get hairy? Okay, well, the, the answer is that they are important and they're not important. So let me just set the stage a little bit. In terms of the charts that uh, you know we can reference, to demonstrate the importance of global liquidity, you need to look at slide six, which is looking at how asset markets react to liquidity. And what you can see on that is an extremely tight, but more importantly, a tightening correlation over time. So liquidity is the main driver, and you may want to look at the subsequent slide seven, which actually shows how responsive uh, crypto and gold, the traditional monetary inflation hedges are to those movements in liquidity. Now, what I go on to show on another slide nine in the in the slide deck is the structure of global liquidity. And global liquidity is a pool of funds of about $170 trillion. It's the private sector that ultimately creates that, but it rests on a base and we think of that base as a monetary base, or probably more correctly now, what we term a shadow monetary base, because it's not just central bank money or bank reserves. It's also factors like collateral, and it's also factors like offshore pools of cash, for example, the euro dollar markets or operations that involve FX swaps. These things are increasingly important. More and more, the financial system is operating on collateral. And that was one of the things that came out of the 2008 GFC, Global Financial Crisis. Banks don't lend on trust anymore. They need collateral. And that's important. Now, to come to your specific question about US bank reserves and what's going on, I think one has to go back to understand the events in more detail of September 2022. And in September, the British gilt market melted down because of a budget mini budget statement that the incoming uh, temporary incoming prime minister Liz Truss pr uh, proposed that was a pro growth budget but the markets didn't like it and consequently the british sovereign debt market the gilt market sold off now the bank of england came in with some alacrity reversed their qt policy overnight and engaged a qe but the key point here is that had that same event happened in what you correctly pointed out earlier on, is the most important financial market in the world, the US Treasury market, would have had a global financial crisis without any question. That, I think, was a wake-up call for policymakers worldwide. And what you've seen since that date is principally, I think, two things going on generally, but let's focus on the US uh, for ev to evidence that. The first is that US bank reserves have effectively flatlined since that point. And increasingly, the Federal Reserve has created some mystification, let's say, about its, QE pro its QT program. So most people would understand QT as being the reverse of QE. If QE was injecting liquidity, QT is removing liquidity. But the best way of gauging liquidity in uh, the US money markets is to look at bank reserves. But hey, they flatlined. And what the Federal Reserve is really saying now is its QT policy actually has to be uh, gauged through the roll-off of treasuries on the balance sheet. Nothing about liquidity. It's all about whether they reduce the balance sheet by getting rid of treasuries. Reducing the balance sheet doesn't necessarily reduce liquidity because every item on the balance sheet is not liquidity creating. Mm. And so what they're doing is they're having their cake and eating it. And what they're doing is, if you reference the, the chart, for example, the one that we, we put about bank reserves, which is chart 14, what you can see there is that there are three lines on that chart. One of them is the orange line, which refers to U.S. bank reserves, which are rolling on at about three trillion U.S. dollars. Each, you know, each weekly observation is about three trillion. And it has been each week for the last 22 weeks. I put a one standard deviation uh, lower bound on that to show the normal fluctuations. But hey, we've got the uh, debt ceiling issue. Uh, we've got great seasonality in tax payments. So, you know, maybe that we need to be a little bit more generous on that 
one standard deviation, but hey, let's think about it where it is. And another dotted line, which is vertical, sorry, horizontal at uh, 2.5 trillion. 2.5 trillion is what many US academics, and you referred to Jerome Powell as well, are citing to be the minimal operating level for US banks. And if reserves go below that level, there may be refinancing problems in the markets, as we saw back in 2019, where the repo market sold off. Every major financial crisis in the last two decades has been a refinancing crisis. It's all about liquidity getting out of line with these excessive debt loads. The 2.5 trillion was referenced by Jonathan Wright talking at a Brookings conference in September. So this is a well-known figure. We do separate estimates. We get a similar number. Maybe ours is a tad higher, 2.6, 2.7, but hey, it's more or less ballpark. And what the Federal Reserve has been doing has been effectively shadowing that minimum level uh, for the last few weeks. Now, what does it mean in reality? What it means is that what the, what the Federal Reserve is doing in conjunction with the Treasury is trying to reduce bond market volatility, in my view. What you've seen is bond market vol come down. Why is that so important? It's because we live in a collateral-based world. And if you want sort of changes or iterations in, uh, in the development or evolution of the Federal Reserve, one major evolution uh, occurred in 2008 with the GFC when the Federal Reserve switched from being lender of the last resort to being dealer of the last resort. Okay? In other words, it was operating less in banking markets and more in repo markets. Uh, they've tried to enhance that role over the last decade. So we've now got a standing repo facility, which is available. And we've got the, uh, the Foreign Monetary Authority repo facility as well uh, on top of that. But the key problem that I'll make is that maybe the markets have got even too big for the central banks here. And so what the monetary authorities are doing are moving up the curve to try and control collateral directly. In other words, if you control the treasury market, the sovereign debt market, then you're going to get a lot more chance of controlling all the markets because collateral is so important for liquidity. And if you stabilize these markets, reduce volatility, you're going to be able to get more lending uh, out, of, uh, out of collateral bases. And what the US is doing is what Japan is doing, is what the Bank of England is doing, and I would suspect is what the ECB is probably doing as well. So in other words, Japan may here have been the canary in the coal mine. Uh, this is what we, how we view Japan. We had uh, bad demographics there. We had deflation there. We had zero interest rates. We had negative interest rates. We had QE, QT, yield curve control. Japan exports all these concepts to the West over time. So yield curve control is coming to a high street near you soon, but it may be a more subtle type than we've seen in Japan. Phenomenal points. It seems as if, and, and you're exactly right, it's a very, very prescient point that I think should uh, go home to our viewers, is that with uh, QT and essentially really, really stressing uh, whenever they have the chance to talk about it, how they're rolling off several billion in treasuries every single month, but that's not reducing uh, one of the most important facets of liquidity in the system and for regular financial markets functioning, which is bank reserves. And so they're managing inflationary expectations, which is basically the the, the one of the other policies that they've adopted is rather than being able to manage inflation directly, managing inflation expectations is just as important. They're able to manage those effectively by showing how much they're rolling off their own balance sheet, uh, but they're having their cake and eating it too, because because actual bank reserves uh, aren't falling very materially. They've flatlined since September. And I, I want to get your thoughts on the transition to um, uh, secured uh, financing standards. So obviously, you mentioned in the wake of 2008 that uh, basically banks would lend to one another off of nothing more than really their word, uh, right? LIBOR was, you know, it was this construction of uh, a reference rate that was fraught with uh, corruption uh, and collusion. And off the back of uh, 2008, where it was found that there could be a whole host of shadow risks and the, these deep, deep, deep layers of fragility um, within the banking system, uh, there's been this concerted effort to move towards a secured uh, funding standard. Um, and things like SOFR, which is in the process of, of finalizing its rollout. 
this year. I know it's been finalizing its rollout for the last two years, but we're approaching a few key dates, namely uh, in April, I believe that CMA, CME Eurodollar futures contracts um, will now be using SOFR as their benchmark right. rate. And then in June, I believe LIBOR stops public publication altogether. Right. So as the Fed and other central banks seem to have understood the necessity to uh, manage fixed income volatility, particularly the US uh, Federal Reserve in the US Treasury market, because it's the world's most widely used collateral asset. Um, moving into a secured lending standard, does, do, does the central bank's role fundamentally change to sovereign debt market stabilizer uh, as a result yeah. of the US Treasuries in particular through SOFR now making up a much more important layer of the financial system? Exactly. So I think you've nailed it, Joe. So basically what you've got is the next iteration, which I think we basically saw uh, evidence of from September, is that central banks have moved from being dealer of the uh, dealer of the last resort to being active collateral managers. And that's the key point. So that's why I say yield curve control is important, because that's what they're going to do. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they fix an interest rate. What it may mean is they try and uh, massage bond volatility. But what they can't have is spikes in bond volatility because that will uh, that will destroy the collateral mechanism because effectively margin requirements will go up or haircuts on collateral will be raised. And so credit will come down uh, dramatically. And one of the problems, uh, I mean, there are virtues in this system, but one of the big problems is that the whole financial system becomes a lot more pro-cyclical uh, under this arrangement. So the Federal Reserve has got to be a lot more active, or the Fed and the Treasury together have got to be a lot more active in terms of managing these risks. Now, if you look at uh, a slide that I had earlier in the deck on slide 10, there is a, a chart there where we actually uh, graph what we call the shadow monetary base. So this is the aggregate of central bank money worldwide, plus collateral, uh, plus cross-border flow money. In other words, the size of these offshore pools. Now, what you can see in the in the graph are two lines, an orange line, which refers to a 12 month rate of change and a three month annualized rate of change, which is a thinner black line that spikes higher in the first uh, really over the last well, sorry, since the fourth quarter of last year. So you've got a big increase uh, coming through. And that is partly because bond volatility has dropped. And so the, the effective collateral multiplier has picked up. And the second thing that you've got is that central banks around the world have been opening the money taps to some extent. Now, we covered the US. The US hasn't exactly flooded the system with liquidity, but I would say that it's arrested the decline in bank reserves. And if you look at um, where bank reserves probably would have been uh, or slated to be, uh, assuming that the Federal Reserve was running treasuries off its balance sheet at a fairly uh, constant hum, they're probably sitting 500 billion uh, above where they should be right now. So that gives you some idea about how the Fed has changed. And we would argue, as you, you infer, that probably there's a bifurcation in monetary policy now. So interest rates are going to stay higher for longer because they're the weapon to kill inflationary expectations. But the balance sheet's being used for financial stability. Now, not only it's not only the Fed that's changing, others are. And we've got to think about Japan and we've got to think about China in particular. And both China and Japan have put a lot of liquidity into their money markets through uh, central bank operations. Japan is doing it for financial stability reasons as well. Uh, a lot of the arguments that were made uh, at the end of last year were that they were basically uh, buying JGBs or shifting their target ranges to improve liquidity in the JGB, the Japanese government bond market. I think that's quite plausible. That's not to say they won't raise interest rates in the next few months, but that's a different question. But I think this was generally uh, a treasury market liquidity move. And then you've had China, which is doing very different things. China's not operating a yield curve control. What China is doing is just trying to uh, plain and simple goose its economy after the uh, COVID lockdowns and the reopenings. And the scale of liquidity injections that the Chinese are putting into this system are kind of eye-watering. Uh, in December and in January together, they've injected 3 trillion yuan, which in, uh, in proper money is 450 billion US dollars. Now, to scale that, that represents about three and a half times what the Chinese put in in the previous two years in total net. 
So they're going for it, okay? And what we've seen through February is it's been a little bit more up and down, but generally the trend is increasing. So they're trying to get they're trying to get the economy stimulated. And I think what you're seeing is the evidence of that, looking at the commodity markets, for example, and the turnaround you've seen in a lot of business confidence surveys uh, through January. Absolutely. And so it seems, so by your measure, is the inflection that has occurred recently in global liquidity uh, a combination of uh, not just the Fed, but sort of this concerted effort by central banks globally, uh, this new understanding that they have to stabilize their sovereign debt markets, they can't allow them to sell off like they did in the UK. And as a result of that, interbank liquidity is flatlined. In some cases, it's inflected back upward. That's the first component of global liquidity uh, now now rising on a year-on-year basis. And it's also these tremendous liquidity injections um, from China as a, as a, as a, a, uh, in order to spur its economy. Are those the two primary components of the, the, glo- the, the rise in global liquidity? Are there any others? Well, they are. But I think the other thing, as I, as I alluded to, is that the drop in bond volatility increases the, effectively the collateral multiplier. So I think one of the corollaries, one of the takeaways, or may, maybe the important um, corollaries of all this, is that whereas equity investors or many investors have looked at the fixed index of stock market volatility as a good guide to risk historically over the last two decades, say, in future, they go look at bond market volatility measures like the Move Index, which is published by uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Uh, that is a measure of vol across the treasury curve. And that's really a key heads up to what's going to happen because that really tells us, gives us a lot of input about how liquidity could be shaping up in future. Absolutely. Um, to, to touch back on China for a moment, uh, and, and I, I totally agree, I think moving into, particularly with SOFR and the proliferation of a new secured lending standard, I think much more so than, uh, than taking a look at VIX and sort of using it as a gospel, I think more and more investors will be taking a look at uh, fixed income volatility uh, in things like the move index, but also uh, treasury market volatility when they're making their financial decisions and their decisions uh, as to where they position themselves on the risk curve. Because we saw last year, uh, I believe the, the worst uh, sell-off across the US treasury curve um, in several decades. I don't know the actual figure, um, but we we saw a pretty awful sell off last year, and I think what happened in uh, what happened in the United Kingdom was really the the warning shot across the bow that okay, if you're going to move uh, as a as a world to this new secured lending standard, then you need to take a much more active role in your uh, government fixed income markets. Um, does that also change then the way that the Treasury goes about issuing debt? Um, is there is there a necessity for um, the the treasury to also take a much more it it, it obviously uh, adjusts its issue issuance schedule based on the prevailing needs and wants of investors um, and itself of course for funding purposes but it, are there any fundamental changes that will occur when it comes to uh, treasury debt issuance uh, as we move into uh, the, the the secured lending standard. Um, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't, I can't really think of a, of a sort of pl- plausible response uh, to that. I think it, it, it could do. I think that what you've got is you've got, let's say, pretty archaic uh, settlement and trading in treasuries right now. For what is the world's biggest market, you need something beyond an OTC market. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, maybe central clearing or whatever it may be. You need something which is more sophisticated. More, really more appropriate for the time. So I think market depth is important. Uh, one of the things that uh, many people are advocating the Fed to or the Treasury to do is to focus a lot more on uh, on on the run uh, versus off the run treasuries. I mean, these are sort of, if you like, liquidity swaps uh, that they would do. So they'd basically take out uh, an, illi- an illiquid issue and issue a, a new a fresh security which tends to have more, more liquidity. So there are a variety of tricks that could be done. But I think one of the things that I would tend to focus on in terms of understanding the treasury market is to look very closely at what's happened in the US and in the German Bund market in the last 12 months. And in particular to see that the change in rates or the, the, the rise in yields at the longer end could have been far, far worse, okay? So if you look at how rate expectations have shifted, rate expectations have gone up. 
but they have not hit the long end of the curve, para pursue. So what's actually happened in technical or wonkish parlance is that term premia uh, around the 10-year tenor have dropped away dramatically in those two markets. Now, that would suggest, in my simple view of things, that there is a fundamental shortage of collateral in the system. Uh, in other words, that's the type of pristine collateral that investors really want in tough times. And therefore, when tightening begins, investors start to go for the safety or the presumed safety of these issues. And in fact, you know, had the um, uh, had term premium not fallen in the case of the US market, the 10 year yield will probably be well over 5% by now, given the, uh, the aggressive moves at the front end of the curve. So I think one of the other things to start thinking about is collateral and collateral supply is very important here. So that's why I think going back to this whole equation, the Treasury and the Fed have got to get together and think about this collateral management issue. Now, that is an interesting debate once you start to roll out over the next decade and you think about the sort of uh, issuance that may be likely in terms of Treasury coupon over that period. And, you know, I think it's fairly easy to see that with the uh, deterioration in the health of uh, or the fiscal position of many countries. But, you know, the U.S. is, uh, you know, the U.S. may be the, the cleanest shirt in the laundry here, but it's still got a lot of problems. And aging demographics means that uh, entitlement spending is basically a big, big figure and a growing figure, whereas the tax base is effectively flatlining because of uh, aging, uh, an aging working population. Now, on top of that, we've got defense spending. And if you start to look at the latest projections that the Congressional Budget Office have recently made, what the Congressional Budget Office are actually saying is even making relatively uh, conservative assumptions about future defense spending, which I'll come back to, what you've got is a level of Fed take-up of Treasury debt, which will mean that the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve swells towards $10 trillion, uh, by the end of the decade. So in other words, anyone that thought that QE is dead and gone away, think again, it's coming back. Okay, there's a dog leg in the data. We're going down for a bit in terms of Treasury holdings. But believe me, we're going up fast uh, in the next few years. Now, that is, that, those projections, which are in the public domain, anyone can look at them. Those projections assume a level of defense spending of just a tad over 3% of GDP. I would suggest that's way too low, given the uh, heating up of geopolitical conflict with uh, Russia and with China. Okay, Even in the last two or three weeks, this has become an issue. If you take a 5% uh, share of GDP, uh, and maybe you can embed in that an assumption that the US has to uh, effectively bankroll Europe in terms of defense spending as well, because the Europeans are never going to get their act together here. Um, what you've got is the prospect of even more treasury issuance coming. So in other words, my idea or my concept or fear, or let's say projection, whatever, of yield curve control coming to a high street near you is a realistic uh, thing to think about. Um, in other words, you don't really want to be embedded in government debt if you can avoid it. You want to think about other areas. Uh, you may want to think about equities. You may want to think about commodities. You may want to think about corporate debt, although that's clearly going to be, you know, still hampered by the government markets. Or you want to think about crypto. It's not an this is not an investment recommendation with crypto, but uh, let me say, but, you know, these are alternatives. Got it. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we don't worry. We have financial disclaimers in our description as well. And uh, thankfully, we've got uh, a lawyer on hand to help us with those, too. Uh, but so there, over the next decade, you know, there's going to be the structural shifts to where the the treasury and the fed have to work more in confluence with one another sort of blurring that line we've all we've always you know we've always known that the federal reserve uh it's not federal it's essentially a branch of the government with how closely they work together and that relationship is going to grow even closer over the next decade uh as bond market stability is is an absolute necessity and the issuance schedule may need to to adjust uh, accordingly to to the needs of uh, of world financial markets as more treasuries are needed and more stability is needed in order to lubricate uh, normal financial flows. Um, and as such, treasuries, government debt may not be 
the most attractive asset class to be into as uh, to be in as the Federal Reserve grows into more of the uh, marginal dealer of last resort uh, within there. Um, one of the and, and you bring up a very good point. One of the points that uh, I've been drumming for quite some time and that we hold here at the Bitcoin layer um, is that Bitcoin is an asset uh, while, you know, as of right now, it's sort of viewed as this uh, extremely sort of uh, sort of risky asset um, whereby the people who trade it trade it just like an equity. Um, we view that it's sort of insurance on uh, monetary debasement per se. Um, now, obviously, the actual removal of liquidity from the system and the expansion of liquidity from the system, that leads actual observed CPI inflation by several months. And so mm -hmm. when inflation's rip roaring uh, and the Bitcoin price is falling, uh, naysayers will, will point to the fact that inflation is extremely high and that Bitcoin the, the Bitcoin price is falling as, see, it's not an inflation hedge, but they're looking at the wrong type of inflation. They're looking at uh, right. CPI inflation, where they should be looking at uh, uh, monetary inflation and also mm -hmm. monetary disinflation, which we're experiencing right now um, to a pretty precipitous degree. And so uh, I think it's a, a great point. And it's a great point that uh, our listeners should, should take home that if you do believe um, this over the next several decades, this shift will, will occur where central banks become more and more involved in the government bond market uh, and monetary expansion is slated to continue, you may want to consider positioning yourself in an asset class that's a good proxy for that monetary expansion. Uh, obviously, being equities, uh, corporate debt, as you mentioned, uh, but also Bitcoin. Bitcoin tracks the liquidity cycle with pretty high sensitivity. Um, and if you are of the belief that monetary uh, debasement is, is to continue, um, positioning yourself in Bitcoin, which has uh, 400 billion, 500 billion market cap right now, um, you've got you've got some pretty good upside there. So, for our viewers at home, uh, just a, a small point there: if 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 this is to play out uh, as you expect it will, um, and I, and as I certainly expect it will too, let's talk about where we're at currently in the business cycle and sort of your views for the next uh, six to twelve to maybe even eighteen months. So, you have here uh, one of the last charts that's in the deck uh, of the global liquidity cycle, chart 21. Uh, and you show that the liquidity cycle precedes uh, the economic cycle and risk appetite by 15 to 20 months. Given that we saw uh, global liquidity inflect sort of last September, uh, and we, we, we started observing that shift then, as of right now, we're beginning to see risk assets uh, on the rebound, uh, not just uh, equities, but also Bitcoin and other really high beta assets as well. Um, over the next several months, obviously, risk assets are looking forward to something like a Fed normalizing the policy rate. So stopping their really aggressive hikes and eventually pausing. And historically, uh, the Fed pause rally per se, that's been something that's occurred in every single uh, version of the um uh, during every single cycle, except for 2000 and 2001, where equities were still tremendously overvalued. So as equities are rallying with sort of the hopes of a Fed pause coming up and the liquidity cycle inflected back in September, you know, in your purview, what's the path for equities risk taking in credit? Because uh, credit's also doing quite well uh, now, too. It's been I mean, spreads have been coming off their highs for several months now, since I think October, uh, shortly after the liquidity cycle inflected. Do you think 2020 year, 2023 looks more like a year for risk taking uh, than, than 2022? I think that as the year unfolds, the, the short answer is yes. Our view is that uh, the liquidity cycle globally definitively bottomed in October of last year. I would have 100% conviction that liquidity is going to expand on our measures through this year. Okay, uh, point number one. Um, point number two is that if you look at, uh, as you rightly say, if you look at liquidity, it precedes the economic cycle. Uh, the economic cycle is likely to turn this year. Uh, in some cases, it's already turning. I think that you can uh, probably reference one chart, which is chart 12, which basically shows what the Chinese People's Bank has been doing uh, in terms of its liquidity injections. I foreshadowed that earlier on. The PBOC is going for it, injecting 3 trillion yuan uh, in the last two months alone. And the correlation between Chinese PBOC liquidity, the People's Bank, and the world business cycle is remarkably close. And if you project what the PBOC is likely to do, you get a very clear view that the cycle is turning. 
and you can actually uh, you can embroider that same view by looking at commodity markets as well. So it's all pretty much on track. So it looks like there's an inflection uh, largely coming. To get a further insight into that, when our when we do our asset allocation, we like to take several views of different market areas. We like to view the fixed income markets uh, separately from the economy, separately from liquidity. If you look at a, another chart, for example, chart 17, uh, which looks at the Federal Reserve and the profile of our index of Fed liquidity in blue for this cycle compared with the Y2K cycle, uh, which basically covers the period you cited, uh, which is 2001, 2002, then you get a pretty good heads up of where we are. It looks exactly on track. Now, what happened in uh, 2001, 2002, you basically got uh, bond market volatility dropping. Uh, you started to see the corporate bond market outperform. Uh, you started to see commodity prices racing ahead. Uh, the government market, if I recall, in 2001 was, gave you a moderate return, not an exciting return. Uh, we think that both Treasury and uh, broad equity markets will be essentially flatlined this year or be in trading ranges. But there will be opportunities in certain segments of which I noted corporates are one. Uh, you'd also uh, expect to see, uh, as I say, commodity markets picking up. You'd expect equities to get traction as the period lengthens or unfolds. Uh, in 2001, two equities came off a very much higher valuation base. They were much more expensive coming in uh, to the to the floor of the tightening cycle. Uh, and what's more, we saw the uh, horrific events of 9/11 as well, which uh, you know came in the middle of that period. So you know, Parche, we don't get anything like that. Equities should get more and more traction as the as the year unfolds. To get a good heads up of what the liquidity cycle looks like, slide 18 is looking at the long run perspective of how the liquidity cycle unfolds. And this goes back to 1970. It shows recurring cycles. Uh, this is the global index, uh, which ranges between zero and 100. Uh, it's already bottomed, as I suggested. Uh, it's likely to pick up, and we think it will top out in 2025. Now, as you can see from the data, another sort of health warning is that things don't, markets don't move in straight lines. And neither does liquidity. So we may get some, uh, you know, some wobbles en route, but generally the trend is higher. And what we've got now is the we've got, uh, you know, the wind behind us. Uh, we're not facing a headwind of liquidity. Uh, so that tailwind should be supportive of markets, we think. Um, and in terms of where should you go for asset allocation? Uh, there's a matrix, I think, on the last slide 22, which basically looks at how we uh, invest money. And we tend to think of uh, investment as having regimes or zones um, that is based entirely or keys off the liquidity cycle exactly what we uh, what we where we've been I should say is in a phase called turbulence not surprisingly uh, that's been uh, occupying everybody for the last 12 months at least that is a phase where volatility based strategies things like CTAs cash US dollar defensive uh, growth stocks tend to do well Okay, and that's pretty, pretty much tick those boxes. The next phase up is what we call rebound, when you're starting to get more traction out of fixed income arbitrage funds. Uh, corporate credits uh, tend to do well. Uh, you tend to find that uh, bond vol comes down through that phase, and you can make money out of certain equities like cyclicals. Now, if we're correct in our view, that the world economy is turning courtesy of China, and the treasury market here is kind of flatlining, you kind of want cyclicals over growth stocks, in my view. That, I think, would make more sense. And to put it in very, very, and I'm going to say very simple terms, the way that we tend to think about equities is to say, look, uh, if you think of equities as having two moving parts, a PE and an E, the Federal Reserve is controlling the PE more and more, and the E is being dominated by the People's Bank of China because of China's large industrial footprint. So what you're basically seeing is a situation where the E uh, may be more supported than many analysts think because of China's, uh, you know, goosing of their economy. And the PE may be held up by what the Federal Reserve is doing now. So if you look at those two moving parts, cyclicals get more of their traction from the E and growth stocks get more of their traction, you know, linking with the PE. Fantastic. So cyclicals 
uh, in this period stand to do well uh, as equity valuations get supported. I was actually just about to uh, to ask you about that because I heard you talking about uh, how uh, the P comes from the U.S. and the E comes from China. Um, but thank you for touching on that. And, and this is a great asset allocation matrix. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, what what is doing well now as we head into rebound? Uh, th this phase that you're talking about is credit. Credit is doing well. Um, you know, as we sort as, as credit risk uh, ameliorates, liquidity begins turning. Uh, and market risk begins uh, sort of turning the other way as well. Uh, prior to this call, I had tremendous respect for your uh, markets framework. And after speaking with you, I have even more respect for for your markets framework. I think, absolutely. I think it's one of the most robust uh, and, and accurate through time uh, frameworks that I have seen in, of course, my very, very short time in markets. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm sort of a, a, new, a new guy here, relatively speaking. The last question I'd like to ask you before we uh, sign off here, and again, this has been tremendous, is... It, you know, as the liquidity cycle begins turning, as China is easing to an extreme degree as they are now, um, you know, and the economy in the United States domestically, it's much more robust than most people expected. Equity valuations, you know, earnings reports, they're they're coming in bad, but that's mostly f for sort of the, the tech firms, the very, very highly interest rate sensitive firms. Uh, they're holding up moderately well as the economy remains robust, as China begins easing uh, to a tremendous degree, and as this liquidity cycle, we're, we're well on the way of inflecting back upward. The one flying the ointment um, could be, seems to be, and I want to ask you about this, maybe CPI inflation. We still mm -hmm. have CPI inflation in the six handle. Um, it's coming down pretty materially meeting after meeting, uh, but we just saw in this meeting uh, it was it was marginally, I believe, by a tenth of a percentage point higher than analyst expectations. Do you feel that as the economy is more robust than was anticipated, uh, the liquidity cycle is inflecting upwards? Clearly, uh, to some degree, animal spirits are back in risk markets. Do you think that there's any potential risk that as global growth moves back in the upward direction, that there's a, a risk to CPI potentially being stickier uh, than anticipated and a monetary response that comes after that being more extreme. Do you think there are any downside risks there? Yes, I think that there are there are two two considerations here. I mean, one is to say that um, if you come back to high street inflation, it's got two moving parts. And I think, Joe, you cited those earlier on. One is monetary inflation and the other is cost inflation or cost deflation, whichever applies. And what we've enjoyed for much of the last two decades is cost deflation because of China. And you might, to use the dreaded word transitory, that may have been a transitory phenomenon, okay, but it lasted 20 years. And that may have been lost now. So we don't want to get the same downward push from costs that we've been seeing uh, over that period. And what we've got are different cycles of, of money. Now, I'm going to revert away from liquidity, which is a financial market concept, back to money, which is more of a real economy concept. And if you look at traditional money supply measures, they are really tanking, right? Uh, so things like M2 are negative growth. That would suggest to me that given the strong relationships between money and high street inflation, what you've got is a tumbling of inflation rates through this year, okay? But I still think that inflation is going to be volatile and probably a higher trend level than we've been seeing. I don't think dramatically higher, but I think what we've got is, as to use your term, sticky inflation, but also volatile. There'll be shocks in inflation. Now, to my mind, what the Federal Reserve is doing here is it's copying the script that was originally laid down by a British journalist called Walter Badgett, who wrote a famous book called Lombard Street in the 19th century. Uh, Jim Grant, the sort of doyen of central banking in America, has written a fantastic biography of uh, Walter Badgett. But Walter Badgett is important because he was observing the uh, the, the roller coaster money markets, the then repo markets in Britain in the middle of the 19th century, after the failure of a big shadow bank called Overend Gurney, which was then the world's biggest financial institution. It went bust and the Bank of England refused to bail it out. And that basically caused a tumble in the money markets. What Walter Badgett said was, this is what central bankers have to do. They have to lend freely at a high rate of interest against good collateral. And that is the recipe for central banking in these markets. What our central bankers have been doing for much of the last 20 years is doing the absolute reverse of that. They've been lending at low interest rates against poor collateral uh, and not making that much liquidity available. And that's where the problem is. You've led to this huge, huge 
uh, pick up in debt. And debt is the problem that everybody faces. We've got to get rid of it. Now, to answer your question specifically about debt, is, uh, you know, is the Federal Reserve going to do a Paul Volcker and basically smash the system and get that debt down, kill inflation? Yes, but no. They will do that, I think. But this year is not the best year to do that. And the reason it's not the best year is you've got a war going on in Europe and you've got tensions with China. Why do you want to derail the economy right now? There's no reason to do that. What you can do is let a little bit of inflation pass through the system. You basically devalue, monetary devalue some of your debt. And then if you want to tackle the debt burden with high interest rates, do that down the road. Don't have to do it right now. You can kick the can down the road to use the politicians' parlance right now. And that's what I think is going on. So in that view, that's why I think that you've got liquidity coming back into the system and why, you know, you've got to start rethinking asset allocation uh, for a more benign liquidity cycle in the next two years. Right. Very well said. We're moving into a totally new paradigm in terms of uh, global liquidity dynamics as we move to uh, a secured funding standard. We're potentially moving into a phase where uh, rates are at a much more regular level here. Uh, we allow moderate, potentially structurally higher inflation to pass through the system. Uh, and of course, treasuries now have a much more regular uh, part in that system through SOFR and other secured lending standards. Uh, absolutely fascinating stuff, Michael. Uh, before we sign off here, where can people find you? Well, they can find us through the, our website, which is crossbordercapital.com. Uh, I wrote a book about this stuff that you uh, referenced something earlier, which is called Capital Wars which is published by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, that's available through Amazon, I'm, I'm sure. And uh, we've got a Twitter handle, which is at CrossBorderCap, which is pretty active. And there's a LinkedIn site as well. All right. Fantastic. Well, Michael, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. Keeping it here at the Bitcoin Layer. Great. Thank you. Thank you.